Are we living in an illusion? And is that illusion coming from us or what? Aloha, our undoing radio listener. I am your host, Jeremy Vaney. And we will be tackling the age-old question of, is life an illusion or what? What does this word mean? Illusion. Um, probably most people in this here society think like dreams are illusions. Dreams are fantastical and, uh, have no boundaries and are kind of mirages, but, uh, but our waking life, that's reality. That's, that's concrete. There's, there's a table here and I just knocked on it. And we know that there are rules that we've set up in society that we need to live by, so that's not an illusion. If it were an illusion, you wouldn't get arrested, right? There are things you have to do. There is a uh, reason that one needs to be disciplined enough to be called an adult, uh, or else why, why even have growth from child to adulthood, from a baby into a child into adulthood and beyond? I mean, Why? It's all just a, kind of an illusion. Then I guess you could just blow on it and uh, see through the smoke and there the truth be, right? You know, I was driving home from the Kona side of the island uh, not too long ago when uh, Carol, me lovely wife, pointed out um, a sign that said something like, last chance or last stop for great hot food, you know, something like that. It was like a gas station that had food and it's like your last stop. It's really your last gas station stop for the next, um, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour, somewhere in there. And, um, you know, I was sort of joking with her about, about that, about wow, great food, huh? Imagine if it was great food. Imagine if this was this little hole in the wall, you know, was someone's dream and they just created the greatest food stop on the island and we just don't know it because we look at that and we think it's a joke. Um, and then it got me thinking about like, imagine you're on a desert <laughs> and there's nothing for hundreds of miles. I mean, could you imagine having? some little dive truck stop that served the best of something in the world. Like it was your goal to just have that there, this little oasis that nobody knew about. That was like the most pleasant surprise for anyone who stopped there, who probably would have loved it anyway, because it's the only place, you know, it's the only game in, in the non town. Uh, but, but lo and behold, it's also awesome. And that got me to thinking about when we originally moved here together, um, how we were tempted to do something communal with our property, to have some sort of stop in a rest place, maybe, or a community gathering spot or a place where we have speakers come in. Um, we even toyed with the idea of, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, Carol has become this great cook and this great baker, you know, maybe she could make food and we can have like a little community center. I don't know if she would sell it or, uh, but it would just be there. How cool would it be? Like maybe we could have a place where people just come in and 
play games, play board games. And that got me thinking about Hawaii had this original board game. I don't remember what it was called, but uh, I learned from my friend Willie that this game wasn't just a game. It was also how uh, warriors strategized back in the day. They used this game to do that. So it sort of was a double intent behind that game. And thinking about that, thinking about ancient Hawaii playing this board game that is also not a board game, but a thing for war, for for battle strategies. For some reason, that got me thinking like, it's kind of like Othello. Maybe it was Othello. I don't know. But um, something basic like that, which got me thinking about the TV show Lost and the way that that began with um, the game Othello uh, and the um, John Locke character explaining uh, to a child the light and the dark in this game Othello, which gets me to thinking about the ancientness and the universality of the whole good evil concept or the light dark metaphor and on and on my thinking goes all because uh, we made a little joke about a gas station last chance hot food here sign. Now think about that. Think about your own train of thinking. Have you ever thought about something? And maybe someone asks you as Carol did, which is why I remember this. She asked me, so what are you thinking at some point in the car ride? And I thought, you know, not only do I know what I'm thinking, I remember the entire chain of thought that got me to what I'm thinking about right now. Wouldn't it be interesting if I just said that? So I did, which is pretty much what I just laid out here. Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought about the chain of thoughts that go into what you're thinking right now at this moment? So that's what we call thinking. And how different is that from a dream? I mean, it's just flowing one scenario to the next, to the next, to the next. And, you know, this sort of stream of consciousness um, bunch of scenarios is loosely connected just by associations, just by word or imagery associations or memory associations. Is that much different than a dream? So when we say that that thought is rational and that this world of thought is concrete, the daytime world of thought is concrete and the nighttime dream time is nonsense, are they really that different? And in fact, we know that uh, a lot of times the most useful stuff that we use in our daily lives comes from dreams or the most prophetic warnings that we get come from dreams. Some of the deepest truths come in dreams. Some of the deepest truths, some of the most useful stuff comes from thinking about it or comes from pondering or comes from a moment of insight that seems to come out of nowhere. So how different are all of these states of mind coming into being through the body? All these useful actions. How different is it? Ooh, you hear that? It's starting to rain. I don't know if you can hear that. But you're probably gonna. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy it, or, or I apologize in advance. Uh, but I shall carry on, because now I want to talk about our cat Oscar. Oscar 
is a tabby cat. He was a big, fat, happy tabby cat who then became a thin, happy tabby cat, full of life and energy. Old, 20 years old, which in cat is about 94, 93, 94, um, has been in kidney failure for about a decade, <laughs> which apparently cats can live in kidney failure. They can live with 25% of their kidney. Didn't know this till just recently. Um, yeah, they can live with 25% of their kidney working. Um, so that's nice. I guess the, uh, the notion that you need your kidney to be hundred percent healthy to live is uh, an illusion. <laughs> There's that, but that wasn't going to be my point. Um, at some point he, something in his mouth hurt in his jaw and we just, uh, we didn't know what it was. He was pawing at it. He didn't want to eat anymore. Um, it seemed to bother him the most when he ate. And, um, so we brought him, we, we had a vet actually come to the home, a friend of a friend, and she didn't see anything wrong with him. So she said, you should probably bring him to the vet if it persists. And it persisted. So we brought him to the vet number two and vet number two examined him thoroughly and could find nothing wrong. Uh, no reason for it. And, um, couldn't hear us that that was the problem. All she could see was the numbers about his kidneys in his blood work and how he should be dead by now anyway. So like, of course he's having problems. He's an old cat with kidney failure. Of course he doesn't want to eat. And we're like, no, it's not that it's, it's really the mouth thing, but she couldn't hear us. It was like change blindness for this, uh, for this vet. Like she just, she couldn't understand that he was eating because you know, cats and kidney failure apparently don't want to eat, but he wants to eat. He just can't eat because of his mouth. So we bring him to vet number three, and vet number three has the same exact reaction. No, vet number one had the same reaction, too, of like, oh, he's just old, and of course he doesn't want to eat. Vet number three went that way. She saw his blood work, and she said the same stuff, and we kept trying to tell her, no, no, the mouth is the problem. He wants to eat. And she kept repeating, yeah, of course he doesn't want to eat. You know, these old cats. He's that kind of cat who didn't know he was, you know, when he was supposed to die. She said something real sensitive like that. Didn't know he was supposed to have died by now. Uh, but no, that's not the problem. The problem is he just, uh, there's something wrong with his mouth that nobody can diagnose. And the problem with his age is, you know, because Carol had suspected that it's, that he had had some teeth removed a few years ago and now his mouth wasn't tracking properly and um, so if you were to get the teeth removed, if that were the case, then maybe that would clear it up, except that he's so old now that to undergo anesthesia would be horrible for him. So, uh, I think the second vet had actually put him on subcutaneous fluids. So from now on, we would have to inject him with these subcutaneous fluids and try to feed him this, um, you know, pet food that um, is highly, I don't know if it's medicinal, but it's certainly so tempting that cats can't not eat it. And it's soft. It's super soft. It's the type of food that they give to emaciated, emaciated cats um, who don't want to eat. So, we, and then there was like a gel or something that you're supposed to like put on his gum. And we did all this stuff and um, he didn't like the food, the subcutaneous fluids you know, he hated that. It made him loopy. And actually that second vet had given him an antibiotic and, um, some form of morphine 
which was supposed to make him feel better. Neither of them made him feel better. They made him feel loopy and that made him scared. Um, so now we have a loopy, scared cat who doesn't want to eat, whose jaws hurt, who can't be diagnosed for some reason. And we just thought this is it. Oscar's going to going to die. And I remember it must've been that night. Um, as we're going to bed, he did something uncharacteristic. Oscar, I got to say is cat person. Doesn't matter. He's the sweetest being I've ever known. He taught himself etiquette. <laughs> like what cat does that? Like, uh, apparently before he moved to Hawaii, he never used to meow at all. He was quiet. And ever since moving here, he's been meowing away. And he decided at some point to start meowing to tell us when he was finished eating so that we could put his food away because we feed him raw food. So it's not like you can just leave it out. So he would he every and I, t- I remember first telling Carol about this and she's like, no way that that's not what he's doing. But then it became obvious that's the only thing he's doing uh, is just being kind and telling us I'm finished. You can put it away now. Um, things like that. Things like he would always run into my lap, but he wanted to uh, he would walk around the carpet. <laughs> so it's just like a rectangular carpet and he would do like a 90 degree turn around the edge of the carpet. So weird. Uh, and I talked about it in another episode in uh, last season about his habit of waking me up in the morning and not wanting to yell in the bedroom when he was frustrated. So he would, you know, quietly meow. And then when he was frustrated that I didn't get up, he'd go into the living room and meow and, you know, vent. Um, total sweetheart of a lap cat. Loved, just loved a good lap. But I think it was this night and maybe I have my nights wrong, but it was pretty early on into this problem that he, uh, uncharacteristically, as we were saying, good night, Oscar, we're going to bed now. Um, jumped up on the little table next to my chair and started meowing at me. He never jumps on the table. That's just not something he does. They're not allowed. I mean, that's the one thing that Carol has <laughs> taught the cats is like, don't jump on tables. Um, but it was clear, like he didn't want me to leave. And I actually said to Carol, I think if I don't allow him to sleep on my lap, if I don't sleep in this chair and he's on my lap, I think he's going to die. Like, I think he's telling me he needs love, you know, like love is the best medicine kind of thing. So, I uh, slept in that chair. Don't recommend that. Um, And Oscar purred away and had a good night's sleep. And when he got up in the morning, he was right as rain. He was his old self again. And he was doing so well. I mean, he was actually eating a little bit again. It was like everything was on the mend. But as Carol reminds me, um, you know, progress with health isn't a straight line. It's a... ups and downs. It's a wavy line. Still, we were feeling pretty good about this. And, um, I was especially feeling good about it because a couple of nights earlier, I'd had this dream that I was Oscar, that I was fat, healthy Oscar. Uh, and I was in a race on scooters with thin, emaciated, dying Oscar. And in this dream, my scooter, I couldn't quite get it working right. And then I finally did. And I was going to win. Um, but dying Oscar, uh, cheated. He started using his feet to run with the scooter. Uh, 
So he won in the dream, and this old woman who was the judge uh, had pronounced him the winner, and I was saying, that's no fair. I'm, I'm Fat Oscar. I'm this fat cat. <laughs> and I'm saying, that's not fair. He, he cheated. He cheated to win. And she's saying, um, well, let me look it up in the rule book. Uh, and I'm, I'm arguing with her. I'm like, you don't have to look it up in the rule book. It's a scooter race. Like if this were NASCAR and I were to ride a motorcycle, I couldn't do it because NASCAR is a car race. So by definition, that's what the race is. So it is cheating. Um, and as I'm arguing this point with her and she's ignoring me and saying, let's just look it up in the rule book. Um, dying Oscar, death Oscar is playing dead on. So sort of cartoonishly lying on the ground with his arms, uh, all over the place with his tongue hanging out. And he, every now and then when like her back is turned, he looks up and he sticks his tongue out at me and he makes funny faces and I'm just really angry. And she's saying, Nope, I don't see anything in the rule book. He wins. And, the dream was obvious to me. It was obvious in the dream what the dream was. The dream was, you, you know, death is going to cheat. Death is always going to win. There, there really is no cheating with death. It's just death always wins. And it, it bothered me when I woke up because I was like, God, is this what's going to happen with Oscar? Like, I couldn't shake the feeling that this was literally about Oscar. That no matter what we do, Oscar is going to die. And it felt unfair because he wasn't dying of kidney failure. He was dying from some mouth thing that seemed solvable because again, he wanted to eat. So like, why couldn't he just eat? Like, why couldn't they pull a splinter from his gum or pull a tooth or something? It just seems so pedestrian and obvious that there was a, an answer to be had here. And then he could go on and live a few more years of his life. But I think the dream was telling me that, um, well, sorry, pal, you don't get to win this time. Uh, or he doesn't at least. And so when he was doing so well after sleeping on my lap, you know, love really did save the day. I do believe that we both believe that, that he might not have even made it as far as he did. He eventually did pass away. Uh, but at that point we thought, okay, you know, I was like, oh, well, screw you dream <laughs> trickster death cat be damned. <laughs> Uh, he's going to make it. But then a few days later, all of a sudden, the ill health caught back up with him. And so it was this sort of back and forth thing for a little while, uh, for you know a couple of weeks. I think he ended up having a couple more weeks because of, um, because of love, but then ultimately passed away because of death. <laughs> because of the problem, whatever the problem was, uh, which again sucked because he was lucid to the end. Um, and, but just nothing they tried, antibiotics, morphine, um, nothing they tried worked. None of these foods worked. He just couldn't do it. Uh, and we realized that, um, you know, we should probably try to pull his tooth and risk death anyway from the anesthesia. Um, but the soonest they could do that would mean would be a few weeks out and that would be a few weeks of torture because he wasn't eating and he was pawing at his mouth more. He was now hiding under a desk. He didn't want to be on a lamp. He wanted to hang out with extension cords. 
so we decided it's best to put him down. But I got to say also, there was a night in there where we hung out on the couch and just staring at each other for a really long time. And I got the sense that he knew what was going on. I mean, the sweet little innocent cute cat had a mature side to him. I had the sense uh, that he knew what was going on and he was okay with it. So while he wanted to live, there was also this sense that like he was okay with this process of dying. Carol and I weren't, <laughs> but, but Oscar was. And when he did pass, uh, we brought him to, to the vet, uh, Vet number three. And on the way home, um, I don't know how to explain this any other way than to just say I felt him leave. Like I didn't feel him necessarily leave as he was being put down or anything like that. But like on the car ride home, it was like I just knew he was gone. Like we had another cat, Elvis, who passed away. And it kind of felt like he lingered around for a while. And he was a bit of a trickster cat himself. But Oscar, who was a lap cat, who loved me, and I loved him. He loved Carol. Carol loved him. But we had a special bond. And I honestly thought, if there's a ghost cat that's ever going to stick around for me, it's going to be Oscar. Um, I think Elvis probably stuck around to tell Carol that he was okay. Uh, and to just fart around and be a jerk <laughs> would be my guess. But Oscar, I thought, would stick around for me, which I didn't want. Um, but I was wrong. I, at least it, all of this is a feeling. I can't really justify this rationally, except to say that he left. That was it. And I knew it and, um, good for him. And maybe that was part of the message of the staring contest of him saying, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with this. Uh, it was good to meet you, but I got to go. So... With all of that said, is life an illusion? I mean, here I am on the brink of tears about a cat who passed away. Um, this story involves elements that uh, a lot of people wouldn't believe. They believe that I believe it. They would believe that it's you know true for me. But it's me anthropomorphizing or you know something along those lines. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But uh, let's give it to him. Let's say it is. What's important about me doing that for me? One notion that goes hand in hand with life is an illusion for people is a therefore. Therefore, don't have attachments. And so there are people who go crazy in life trying to repress their relationships, their sense of loving uh, because they consider that an attachment. I mean, obviously, there are attachments to objects that we have that are unhealthy um, or actions that we're not going to be able to bring with us when we die. Um, but does non-attachment really have to do with how we love one another? Does non-attachment have to do with meaning? I mean, certainly I don't want to be so attached to Oscar that I'm grieving for him constantly or that I have to make up stories about where he goes in the afterlife. 
or that there is an afterlife at all. But what Oscar means to me, what Oscar is meant to us, what I mean to him, that interconnecting relationship that we had, that, that personal thing, that's not an attachment. That, that's a real bond. Meaning can't exist in a vacuum. Meaning needs this thing we call illusion. This, uh, this vessel, this body of illusion, this physical world, needs it to express itself. Meaning needs separate entities to fake exist. <laughs> oneness needs to split itself up. Or should I say, oneness inevitably does split itself up. And so when I say needs to, what I really mean is it necessarily is going to be the case that that is what happens. Meaning is necessary. The illusion is necessary. The attachment to the illusion part uh, isn't so necessary, but understanding it is. What's not the illusion, in other words, if life is an illusion? Is it meaning? Is meaning not an illusion? Is meaning real? Is meaning reality? And we've talked about meaning on other episodes. Uh, and I've lamented the fact that we're losing a sense of meaning by becoming more robotic and more fact-oriented, which isn't to say that we should become, you know, false-oriented or uh, willy-nilly-oriented or anything like that, but just that we're losing our sense of meaning. Um, because we've lost maybe in large part the sense that meaning has meaning at all, like intrinsic value unto its own, not just whatever is right for me is right for me. And what's right for you is right for you. But the, the, the thing of meaning, the thing that we say is meaning, meaning itself is its own aliveness. And if it's dead inside of us, then all of this illusion is for nothing. And I think that's what's missing from the conversation about is life an illusion? Because the truth is, appearances, life, whatever, physicality, is a necessary illusion. Nothingness is consciousness. Consciousness is being. What is consciousness being? All things, all appearances, all so-called illusions. That's reality. That is who and what we are. But also, there's this thing called meaning, which is the interiority of that, which is the spark of life within that, that makes it, that makes us valuable, worthwhile, loving even. I mean, all of these words don't really get at it, that spark of life, that thing that Oscar had, right up to the very end, through the pain and through the sickness, and that we all have. Unless we don't, unless we give up, give up on ourselves or give up on these questions, give up on mystery with a capital M, that which cannot be rationalized away and yet is the answer, that which is not silly, and yet is not rational. It's irrational, but it's not stupid. <laughs> it 
It transcends and includes rationality. It can't be captured by it, but it can be articulated. And if we lose that, if we lose sight of that that's who we are, also, and that this thing that we argue about is an illusion or not, is the surface shallow part. It's the obvious part. It should be the gateway philosophy to a deeper conversation, but instead we treat it like the whole shebang, a lot of us. If we keep on keeping on in this direction, the way we've been going, life will not have meaning. And death, which is also life, will not have meaning. And our collective meaning, to anyone who comes along and studies us, if they do, will be as an example of how not to live. Perhaps meaning never dies. Perhaps the the death of meaning in one species is another species' cautionary tale. Another species' inspiration. To live differently. To live rightly. Maybe our story of failure is the mythical foibles of the gods of yesteryear. Do we become that for future generations of sentient beings? Who knows? Maybe when we go, cats come into the fore. Maybe Oscar reincarnates as a uh, as a sentient cat person. The story comes full circle. And, you know, that's that's funny, that's cute. But the reality is a question. Always a question. Who do you want to be in this life? If it isn't who you are right now, can you sit with that without trying to change anything? Just sit with it? Perhaps then... In that silence, in that halt to seeking, halt to judging, that moment of realizing you as you truly are, not as the defense mechanism, not who you pretend to be, and without judging and without running to or from anything, in that moment, that moment of silence, perhaps meaning not of this illusion, just perhaps, comes crystal clear. Crystal clear as you.